Pelvic Rehab Research Podcast. My name is Becca Bissadolshensky, and I'll be your host guiding you as we take a deep dive into all things pelvic floor and research-based. Whether you're a pelvic newbie or a seasoned clinician, I'm here to help busy therapists listen through the Women's Health Study Guide. So if you're studying for the Women's Certified Specialist Exam or just interested in learning more about pelvic health research, we've got you covered. Welcome back to week five. This week is on special topics in pregnancy and postpartum. And we're going to start with an article by Pivernick in 2006 on impact of physical activity during pregnancy and postpartum on chronic disease risk. So this is another abstract due to a paywall, but I just want to go into and over some of the topics even within the article besides just the abstract. I think that some of the diagnoses that they throw out there are worth brushing over regarding their general understanding and review. What stinks is I've had access to these articles before, so I know how informative they are, but I also realize that these disease processes are covered in the Arian text too, especially more in depth. But just in general, if you hear a disease or a condition in this article or any, and you have no idea what it is, this is the time for you to look it up and understand it a little bit more. So let's jump into the abstract. The authors or the expert panel include the following. James Pivernick, Heather Chambliss, James Clapp, Sheila Dugan, Maureen Hatch, Cheryl Lovelady, Michelle Matola, and Michelle A. Williams. So here's the abstract for you. Research over the past 20 years has focused on the safety of physical activity during pregnancy. Guidelines for healthcare providers in pregnant and postpartum women have been developed from results of those studies. The overwhelming results of most studies have shown few negative effects on the healthy pregnancy, but rather to be beneficial to the maternal and fetal unit. Recently, researchers have begun to consider the role of maternal physical activity in a more traditional chronic disease prevention model for both mother and baby. To address the key issues related to the role of physical activity during pregnancy and postpartum on chronic disease risk, the ACSM convened a scientific roundtable at Michigan State University in East Lansing, Michigan. Topics included things like preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, breastfeeding and weight loss, musculoskeletal disease, as well as mental health and offspring health and development. And just as a little aside for any Michiganders listening, I lived in East Lansing for three years while my husband went to MSU for law school. So go green. So let's touch base on the first two disease processes that they list including preeclampsia and gestational diabetes. So preeclampsia is a blood pressure condition that develops during pregnancy. People with preeclampsia often have high blood pressure or hypertension and high levels of protein in their urine, so proteinuria. Preeclampsia typically develops after the 20th week of pregnancy, and we specifically care about this condition because it can also affect other organs in the body and can be dangerous for both the mom and the developing fetus. With preeclampsia, blood pressure is elevated higher than 140 over 90 millimeters per mercury, and they could have high levels of protein in their urine. It can also affect the blood supply to the placenta, impair liver and kidney function, or cause fluid to build up within lungs. So this disease complicates up to 8% of all deliveries worldwide. In the U.S., it's the cause of about 15% of premature deliveries, and premature delivery being delivery between 37 weeks gestation. So first-time mothers are at a higher risk, but other risk factors could include things like history of high blood pressure, kidney disease or diabetes, expecting multiples, family history of preeclampsia, autoimmune conditions like lupus, and obesity. 
Many people with preeclampsia don't have any symptoms. So for those that do, some of the first signs of preeclampsia are going to be high blood pressure, protein in the urine, and retaining water. So this can cause weight gain and more swelling. Other signs of preeclampsia are going to look like things including headaches, blurry vision or light sensitivity, dark spots appearing in their vision, right side abdominal pain, swelling in their hands and face, and shortness of breath. Now for more severe preeclampsia sufferers, this may even have symptoms including hypertensive emergency. So that's gonna be a blood pressure of 160 over 110 millimeters of mercury or even higher. Decreased kidney or liver function as noted by labs, fluid in the lungs, low blood platelet levels. And some of these items we're not gonna be able to clinically find just due to our scope of practice, obviously, which is why symptoms with high-risk pregnancy are so important. I also think it's fair to say with anyone having a hypertensive emergency, we would not be continuing our session. Preeclampsia is believed to come from a problem with the health of the placenta, so that's the organ that helps develop in the uterus during pregnancy and is responsible for providing oxygen and nutrients to the fetus. Preeclampsia typically goes away within days to weeks following delivery. Sometimes though, their blood pressure can remain high for a few weeks after delivery. So I think it's important to note that our postpartum preeclampsia patients should still be having their blood pressure monitored when they are cleared for exercise. It's also worth noting that more emergent signs of preeclampsia are going to look like things including symptoms of a seizure like twitching or convulsing, shortness of breath, that sharp pain in their abdomen, specifically that right side, blurry vision, that severe headache that won't go away, and still having those dark spots in their vision. So while those severe symptoms necessitate physician care, there are emergent signs that require immediate action. So while those severe symptoms that we talked about a little bit earlier necessitate physician care, those emergent symptoms are going to require immediate action. So now I want to touch base on ACOG's committee opinion on warning signs to discontinue exercise because we are exercise and rehab specialists. So warning signs to discontinue exercise while pregnant include things like vaginal bleeding, abdominal pain, regular painful contractions, amniotic fluid leakage, shortness of breath before exertion, dizziness, and headache. So many of these could occur due to diagnoses like preeclampsia, and these individuals during and after pregnancy are definitely to be monitored for symptoms and vital signs. Worth noting, they also comment that several reviews have determined there's no credible evidence to prescribe bed rest in pregnancy for the prevention of preterm labor, and it should not be routinely recommended. Now, there is evidence to support that women who are regularly performing exercise during the first 20 weeks of pregnancy experience a 43% reduction in risk of preeclampsia as compared to sedentary women. So of note, that is an older study. It was performed by Marco et al. But it's also a well-documented topic that exercise reduces blood pressure through a bunch of different physiologic and metabolic pathways. So if there are parts of you wondering where to draw the line in the sand for continuing or pausing exercise with these patients, especially regarding vital signs, make sure that you feel comfortable with that. Go back to prior articles that review those numbers, and obviously some scenarios can feel gray at times, but as a specialist in this, you should feel starting to feel pretty comfortable with those indications and signs, and knowing that reaching out to a provider is important and an option. So let's talk gestational diabetes. For reference, any information I provide on other disease processes, I'm collecting via sources like Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, or ACOG. 
ACOG was a really great resource for me when I was studying and I didn't know exactly what a disease, a treatment, or procedure was. Their opinion statements on exercise have also been updated recently in 2020. Okay, so gestational diabetes is diabetes diagnosed for the first time during pregnancy. So like other types of diabetes, gestational diabetes affects how your cells use sugar or glucose. Gestational diabetes causes high blood sugar that can affect your pregnancy and your baby's health. It's well documented as well that gestational diabetes can be controlled by proper diet and exercise, as well as, if necessary, taking medication to control glucose levels. So those who have gestational diabetes during pregnancy, generally their blood sugar is going to return to its usual level soon after delivery. But just know that gestational diabetes increases the risk of getting type 2 diabetes. Most of the time, gestational diabetes doesn't cause notable signs or symptoms. Increased thirst and more frequent urination are some possible symptoms. Researchers don't yet know why some women get GDM and others don't. Excess weight before pregnancy can play a role. What they do know is that during pregnancy, hormonal levels change, making it harder for the body to process blood sugar effectively. So that makes blood sugar rise. Risk factors for gestational diabetes include being overweight or obese, not being physically active, having pre-diabetes, having had GDM during a previous pregnancy, having PCOS, which is polycystic ovarian syndrome, having an immediate family with diabetes, having previously delivered a baby weighing more than nine pounds or 4.1 kilograms, as well as being of a certain race or ethnicity such as black, Hispanic, American Indian, and Asian American. Uncontrolled GDM can cause problems for the individual and their baby, including an increased likelihood of needing surgery to deliver, so like a C-section, excess birth weight, preterm birth, breathing difficulties for the baby, increased risk for diabetes and obesity in the child, and even a stillbirth. For those who maybe don't see as many pregnancy patients, just a quick overview of the glucose tests and numbers. This is typically done between 24 and 28 weeks of pregnancy unless there's an increased likelihood of the patient to have GDM, so sometimes they'll do it earlier. It just depends. For the initial glucose challenge test, they'll drink a syrupy glucose solution and then one hour later they'll have a blood test to measure the blood sugar level. A blood sugar level below 140 milligrams over deciliters is usually considered within the standard range on a glucose challenge test although this could vary by clinic or lab. So if their blood sugar level is higher than expected, they'll probably need to do another glucose test in order to determine if they have GDM. Now ACOG notes that observational studies of women who exercise during pregnancy have shown benefits such as decreased GDM, C-sections, operative vaginal delivery, and postpartum recovery time. Some women may develop symptoms if their blood sugar levels get too high, so hyperglycemia, such as increased thirst, needing to pee more often than usual, dry mouth, tiredness, blurred eyesight, or even genital itching or thrush. Also, uncontrolled GDM can increase the likelihood of preeclampsia. So some of these women coming to us may have both of those diagnoses. Blood sugar is important for exercise, so sometimes these women may want to check their levels prior to exercise. Some guidelines for pre-exercise blood sugar levels, the measurements are expressed in milligrams per deciliter or millimoles per liter. Lower than 100 milligrams per deciliter, your blood sugar may be too low to exercise safely. So they're gonna recommend eating a small snack containing 15 to 30 grams of carbs, such as a fruit juice, fruit, crackers, or even glucose tablets before beginning a workout. 
100 to 250 milligrams per deciliters, you're good to go. For most people, this is a safe pre-exercise blood sugar range. Now, 250 milligrams per deciliter or higher, that's going to be a caution zone. Their blood sugar may be too high to exercise safely. So stop exercising if your blood sugar is 70 milligrams per deciliter or lower, or if the patient feels shaky, weak, or confused. It's still recommended that women with GDM should do both aerobic and resistance exercise at a moderate intensity, a minimum of three times a week for 30 to 60 minutes each time. Careful consideration of symptom management during this exercise routine and noting that previously sedentary women before pregnancy should consult their medical practitioner who may assess their suitability for exercise. So I wasn't able to find a specific GDM exercise guideline, but many academic contributors to this topic noted the same considerations and precautions concerning type 2 diabetes should also be considered when exercising women with GDM. Now remember that blunted and normal heart rate responses to exercise have been reported in pregnant women, so the use of ratings of perceived exertion may be a more effective means to monitor exercise intensity during pregnancy than heart rate parameters. For moderate intensity exercise, ratings of perceived exertion should be 13 to 14, which is somewhat hard, on the Borg ratings of perceived exertion scale. Using the talk test is another really great way to measure exertion. As long as a woman can carry on a conversation while exercising, she's likely not going to be overexerting herself. Now let's talk through contraindications before we start wrapping up on this. I know I've reviewed it before. I personally need a repetition for studying, so if you don't need it, just skip on through. Okay, so absolute and relative contraindications for aerobic exercise during pregnancy. We're going to start with relative contraindications, and this is appropriate for all pregnant women, not just those with special considerations. So relative contraindications for exercise with pregnant women is going to include heavy smoking, a history of extremely sedentary lifestyle, orthopedic limitations, poorly controlled hypertension, chronic bronchitis, severe anemia, unevaluated maternal cardiac arrhythmias, intrauterine growth restrictions in the current pregnancy, poorly controlled seizure disorder, poorly controlled hyperthyroidism, and a previous spontaneous abortion. For absolute contraindications, restrictive lung disease, ruptured membranes, preeclampsia, pregnancy-induced hypertension, premature labor during current pregnancy, persistent bleeding in the second or the third trimester, incomplete cervix or that cerclage we've talked about, placenta previa, which is placental implanting into the lower uterus after 26 weeks of gestation, hemodynamically significant heart disease, and a higher order of multiple gestation. So we're thinking triplets or more. Note that preeclampsia is a contraindication. I think what's important to note is while aerobic exercise is not necessarily encouraged, their exercise regimen options and recommendations should be discussed with their OBGYN. Remember that bed rest is also not encouraged for preeclampsia. So these are individuals that you would like to have cleared for exercise as well as being monitored during exercise, especially so if they have prior histories of other pregnancies with this and a history of uncontrolled blood pressure. ACOG's statement notes that there is no evidence that bed rest reduces preeclampsia risk and that it should not be routinely recommended for the primary prevention of preeclampsia and its complications. So there's going to be lines to draw between bed rest and performing aerobic exercise as well as determining appropriate candidates. So let's get to some take-home points. Exercise before and during pregnancy may offer significant benefits to prevent or reduce severity of gestational hypertensive disorders, including preeclampsia. 
Know the signs and symptoms of when to stop exercise with GDM and preeclampsia. Vitals are vital. And remember that most people with preeclampsia may have little to no signs and symptoms. In women who have obstetric or medical comorbidities, exercise regimens should be individualized. Thanks for joining me through this elongated abstract. Next up, we're going to have Penick in 2007, which is a Cochrane review on interventions for preventing and treating pelvic and back pain in pregnancy. So thanks for listening. Hope to see you all listening at our next one. Bye, everyone. <laughs>